All right, if you would um, open up your Bibles or look in your bulletin at Romans chapter 6. We're looking this morning at verses 1 through uh, 14. Romans 6, 1 through 14. You know, I think every Christian alive, if we would but admit it, all of us, um, we harbor thoughts and feelings and attitudes and behaviors that we know have no part in the kingdom of God. And yet they're there. We battle with them, and then we tire, and then we throw up our hands thinking, well, I guess this is about as good as it can get. Christian, you ever feel that way? Today, Paul speaks to us this morning, and he says, do not buy into it. God's grace is far more powerful than you think. God has done something that breaks sin's spell upon us. What is it? Well, let's read and find out. Romans 6, uh, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were baptized, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in In a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, that your your members to God uh, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you've revealed to us this amazing truth. Uh, it's too good to be true, it seems, and, and yet we have a hard time pondering it. You've, you've called us to something epic. You've called us to something um, triumphant, uh, a new life in Christ. Would you please show us by your spirit? Uh, what this means. And more than that, would you press it into our minds and into our hearts and cause us uh, to consider this great hope that we have and how we may live in it, we pray. Amen. 
Yeah, I think most of you know, but maybe there's some visitors today, that you know, I came to Christ a little bit later in life. I was 29 years old. You know, the decade prior to that, you could, I mean, I was either an, I was like an, an agnostic slash atheist, depending upon who I was talking to uh, or what, what day it was, you know. And so um, one of the things that would nag me about Christians, and they, they would share the, the gospel with me, and I'm, I would be like, okay, so what you're saying is God forgives all of your sin, like, past, present, and future? I mean, th- that's just something wrong with that, you know? And, and I, would, I would go, well, why don't you just then, if that's true, why don't you just go out and, like, rob a bank or murder somebody? You know, if God's going to forgive you, you might as well just do that, right? Have you ever, you ever felt that way? You ever had that question in your head or in your heart? Well, the Apostle Paul, who often spoke of God's grace, was prepared for this objection. We see it in the rhetorical question in verse 1. Look at it. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He's saying, are we to sin so that God can just multiply his grace towards us? I mean, that's the question there. Now, here is something for us to see that's important, though, for moving forward. The question here isn't being addressed for the skeptic who rolls his or her eyes at the grace of God. It's addressed to who? Who's this letter addressed to? Christians, like, like you and me. Paul doesn't say, are we to magnify our sins, does he? What does he say? He, he doesn't say, we're to, are we now to go and get wild and crazy and rob banks? No, the word he uses is what? He uses the word continue. Are we to continue in sin? Uh, the word continues means to stay where we are as we are. Paul is saying to Christians, uh, are, we continue, are we to continue where we are all the while telling ourselves it really doesn't matter? After all, we have the grace of God. It sits close to home, doesn't it? Will we who call ourselves Christians stay where we are and excuse ourselves because we know God is gracious? Ray Ortland Jr., whom I'm, among others, indebted to this morning, he makes this comment. Listen, he says, the way, that way of thinking is deeply embedded in American Christianity. I don't have to change. I can stay the way I am, and it's God's grace that gives me my excuse. Gospel grace is the kind of acceptance that leaves me alone. That's not... Christianity, but it's unfortunately how many Christians live. Ron, Ron Sider is a well-respected researcher. He's a theologian at Palmer Seminary. He digs into the numbers and he opens them up for us. He's published a, a polls, um, not all that recently, but about, about behavior um, of people who call themselves Christians. And the data is like a decade's old, but I, I think it's still kind of good for us. Here's some of the facts. In, in, in the area of sexuality, Since 1993, about 2.4 million young professing Christians have signed the True Love Waits Pledge. The pledge is to not have sex before marriage. In 2004, I told you the data is a little old, but I think it's still informative. uh, Researchers at Columbia and Yale reported a seven-year study of 12,000 teenagers who took the pledge. They found that 88% broke it. Another study of the University of Akron finds that 26% of Christians do not think premarital sex is wrong. And 13% say that adultery 
is okay. In the area of money, around 1.2 billion people live every day on about a dollar or less. Plus, there's about 1 billion people around the globe who have never heard the gospel. If American Christians, which are the richest people in the history of humanity, Cider says, if we tithe to our churches, that is, gave 10% of our gross income, we would have around $143 billion in private money for helping the poor and spreading the gospel. Would that be enough? Well, the UN, United Nations, estimates that the basic provision for the world's poor would cost around 70 to $80 billion. Cider points out if, if American Christians just tithe, we ourselves could feed the world's poor while having 60 to $70 billion left over for spreading the gospel. But he says, in fact, only about 6% of American Christians tithe. Let me ask you, do Christians need to change or are we just to continue where we are? Paul's words are perfect, and not just for the Americans out there, but for us here today. Is it not true? We have a tendency to use the grace of God as an excuse for continuing where we are. But Paul overturns such foolish nonsense in our passage. In verse 4, Paul shows us that God's salvation has brought a newness of life to all who believe. And this newness of life means that there is now a radical departure from a life that had been dominated by the grip of sin. See, here's where the gospel of grace is really so delightful. Ultimately, none of us are really going to be satisfied with just forgiveness of sins alone. What is it that we really long for? We long for freedom from sin. Isn't that true? Paul here today shows us how Christ powerfully frees us from the dominion of sin over our lives. John Piper is right. Grace is power, not just pardon. How so? Let's investigate. We're going to investigate Paul's words in three areas. We're going to look at the discovery, the decision, and the directive. The discovery, the decision, and the directive. Imagine you were born prior to the Industrial Revolution, and then you time-traveled to our modern era, and you found yourself face-to-face with an automobile. Now, something about it would seem kind of familiar, right? You would look, well, there's four wheels, but there's no harness for a horse or, a, or an ox, and, and then there's seats inside, kind of like a carriage, but what are these pedals on the floor and that, that wheel thing above? I don't know. You know, that car could take you across the country if you would but just discover how it works. Paul understands this about the gospel. For Christians to travel, to walk through our lives in God-honoring ways, there are things we must discover about this salvation that God has given us in Christ. Paul answers his rhetorical question where he asks, are we to keep on sinning so that grace will abound? And he answers emphatically. In the Greek, it's really emphatic. Basically, you could translate it, heck no. All right? Uh, That's what Paul says there. Um, Heck no. And and we kind of get the heck no. Are we to continue in sin so that grace increases? Heck no. 
But then you notice Paul says something that would have left the Romans scratching their heads. And I think it's something that leaves us scratching our heads. And so we need to discover something. Paul says in verse 2, heck no. What does he say? We have died to sin. How could we ever live in it? Okay. I get the heck no. But what's this about? You see why this is a discovery? Paul says in verse 3, he says what? Do you not know? Christians in Rome, do you not know? Christians in America today, do you not know? Christians gathered here today, do you not know? There are great truths concerning what God has done for us in Christ. Truths we must know. If you want to drive a car across America, even, even with these self-driving cars, I think you still got to know something in order to, to, to do it. If you want to experience true victory over the nagging sins in your life, there's something you must know. Or so says Paul. Paul presents our minds and our hearts with something that we call union with Christ. And if you've been a part of Grace Church, you've heard this somewhat fairly often. Why? Because at least 164 times in the New Testament, we find the words that tell us about union with Christ. It's everywhere. Whenever you read your Bible and you, and you see the words in Christ or through Christ or into Christ or with Christ, the, these are words that speak of our union with Christ. Now, what is union with Christ? Well, here it is. Everyone who genuinely believes in Christ has been united to Christ. God has done it. It's, it's mysterious. It's mystical. But God in his wisdom uh, and in his might has placed us in Christ. Now, here's an illustration I use. I've used it before. Uh, it, it's helpful. So um, picture a book. And uh, it's a big book, so you've got a bookmark in it because you can't read it all in one sitting. You place the bookmark in the book. Now, what happens if your uh, kid throws it in the fire, right? Um, Other than getting mad at your kid. uh, The book would burn up, and uh, it would turn to dust. Now, what would happen to the bookmark in the book? Its fate would be sealed with the book itself. Christian, God has mysteriously and mystically placed your life into Christ's life. When Christ lived that perfect life on earth, guess what? Your life was placed in his life. Your life was, um, was, was hidden in Christ. You were truly there. That's how God sees it. Why does God see it that way? Because God decided to see it that way. This is God's idea. Listen to this, Christian. The salvation that you need is so profound, so rigorous, so complex, and so precarious That God has to get you so close to Christ. No, he's got to get you into Christ, his very life, so that the salvation becomes yours in a powerful way. When Jesus bled on the cross and received the full wrath of God for your sins, you were there in Christ. When Jesus offered up his last breath and cried out, it is finished, you were there in Christ. When Jesus was placed in the tomb and buried there, you were dead in Christ. And then, of course, when Jesus rose from the grave in great victory, you too were and are in Christ. That's Paul's point here. 
Do you not know? (laughs) That's the truth Paul wants us to discover. That God has united us with Christ in his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. That's what verses uh, uh, 2 through 10 are all about. Discovering the implications of our union with Christ. First, Paul wants us to know that all Christians are united to Christ. I don't really feel that way. I believe in Christ, but I don't really feel like I'm united to him. Well, guess what? You are. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into, oh, there it is again, into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Now, one thing baptism represents, and represents many things, is our dying in union with Christ. Remember when Jesus was speaking about the impending death that was coming his way? He referred to it as a baptism to be baptized with. Paul is saying that all believers, all believers, were in Christ when he experienced the deluge of the cross. Paul continues his point in verse 4. He says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Christian, you need to let this sink deep into your being. God has taken you, that, that sinful you, before you trusted in Christ. He took that you, and like a bookmark in a book, he took that old sinful you, and he pressed you deep into his son, and he caused you to die in Christ. That old you is no more. That old you that lived for your own glory is dead in Christ. That old you that used to suppress the truth about God is dead in Christ. That old you that made excuses for your shortcomings is dead in Christ. See, God so loved you that he killed you off. Why would God kill you off? Paul says that God had to kill you off, the old you. He had to kill you in Christ so that you can come to life again in Christ. Do you see verse 4? Do you know, do you guys know what a purpose clause is? It's like uh, so that or in order that, okay. Um, There's a purpose clause here. We were buried therefore with him by a baptism into death in order that... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Oh, how all of humanity longs for newness of life. The irreligious want newness of life. But they think they can find it just as they are, just by adding a few maybe good events in their life. They affirm the goodness of of life, of newness of life, and yet they do not see their need to die in order to experience the new life. So to religious people, the moral do-gooder does not see his or her current life as all that bad. They just think they need to be a little bit better, maybe follow some rules or laws for living, and newness of life will come. But both the religious and the irreligious need a death to come upon them in order to experience the newness of life that comes to us through the gospel. That's why Jesus told that religious leader, Nicodemus, he said to him, Jesus told him that that he must be born anew if he's ever to see the kingdom of heaven. And there can be no new birth unless there is a certain death. 
Paul tells us that by virtue of our union with Christ, a certain death has occurred to us. We have died in Christ. God's purpose for your death in Christ is that we be raised to newness of life in Christ. Paul also wants to discover that this new life in Christ is a certainty. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him, there it is again, union with Christ. It's all over this passage. It's all over the New Testament. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul uses the word certainly. You guys know what that word means? Yes, you do. Certainly. Why are we to be certain of this? Because God is behind it. If you or I were in charge of newness of life that really makes us happy and joyful, um, we wouldn't be all that like confident, right? But God has fixed the certainty of our newness of life on the finished work of his son. It is certain. Paul is saying to us, do you see how Jesus rose in newness of life? Well, you were united with him. And you are united with him. You have risen to newness of life. It's a, de- it's a done deal. Paul says elsewhere, perhaps you know the verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there it is again. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. <laughs> you know, right? Behold, the new has come. Christian, you might not feel all that new, but in Christ you are completely new. The old has passed away. Behold. That that word means, come on, take notice. Behold, the new has come. In verses 6 through 10, Paul shows us that just as Christ died once and for all for our sin, so too, therefore, we have died once and for all to sin. Paul, Paul says, like, when a person dies, sin no longer has a grip on him, right? Okay. When you die, will sin have a grip on you? No? Okay. Well, Paul is saying, just as Christ has died to sin, so too you. <laughs> you were with him. Sin no longer has a grip on you. Well, I feel like I, I tend to sin every day. Well, no, no, no. You've been set free. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. Romans chapter 7. Feel free to read ahead. But I don't want to give you all the answers today. I've got to keep coming back. All right. Where was I? Okay. Um, sin no longer has dominion over us. Paul says that body of sin, that old you that was in Adam, remember from two weeks ago, has been brought to nothing. Why would God do this? So that we too, like Christ, would, know, would not be enslaved to sin. It would have no dominion over us. You see, you've been set free. And we're going to see this next week, this whole slavery thing. That, but... but People without Christ think they're free, but they're really not totally free. They're free to sin. They're free to live selfish lives. But they're not set free to honor God. That's not even anywhere part of their desires. Why? Because you must have a new birth to even have that desire. More on that next week. All right. Christians do sin, and we grieve over sin. But sin no longer defines the Christian. The Christian is defined by grace. It's true, isn't it? People who want forgiveness of sin also really want freedom from sin. Christian, you want that, don't you? I know you do. Your heart cries out for it. And only in Christ is that possible. That's the discovery. 
We need to discover more fully what God has done for us in Christ. God has united us to his son. Our life is now hidden in Christ. Christian, do you see yourself this way? Do you see how it can change you to really truly know this and believe this? You've been set free from the dominion of sin. Now, that's the discovery. The discovery leads to the decision. John Stott makes this interesting analogy. Listen closely. Can a married woman live as though she were still single? Well, yes, I suppose she could. It is not impossible, but let her remember who she is. Let her feel her wedding ring, the symbol of her new life of union with her husband, and she will want to live accordingly. Can a born-again Christian live as though they were still in their sins? Well, yes, I suppose they could, at least for a while. It's not impossible, but let them remember who they are. Let them recall their baptism, the symbol of the new life of union with Christ, and they will want to live accordingly. big idea here is that Paul tells us we're supposed to do something along with our discovery. We're to make a conscious decision. We must act upon what we find. We see this in verse 11. Look at that. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul, Paul says we're to consider something. The Greek word is logizomai. It means to account for, to, to reckon. Um, it's, it's a word used in bookkeeping, like when you're trying to figure out the profit and loss at the end of the month. You go through all the numbers and you try to figure it out. Um, it's like what you would do if you balanced your checkbook. <laughs> uh, you know, in balancing your checkbook, the facts don't change, but you get, to bo- you get to the bottom line. You get to the truth, don't you? I mean, if, if balancing your checkbook actually put more money in your checkbook, I mean, I think we would probably balance our checkbooks more often. But Paul's, um, Paul, Paul um, wants us to see here in this passage that, that we're supposed to go through all the figures. We're, we're to go through all that he's talked about. and We're to, we're to add it all up. We're to sum it up. We're to get to the very bottom. Uh, I've died in Christ. And now I'm alive in Christ. That's the sum total. I'm a different person. Squint if you have to. Uh, Get out the magnifying glass. But come to the proper decision based on what you know. You must reckon or account or consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. It's there in black and white. You're supposed to look at it and go, oh yeah, I've died. Oh yeah, I'm new in Christ. This, this is who I am. No, no, more than that. This, this is who I will be. That's what the reckoning here is. Sometimes as Christians we hear great truth and we never press it into our minds and into our hearts. This past week I wrote my obituary. No, not that obituary. The, uh, the, my, my, the obituary of the old Mark, the old self that has died in Christ. It goes something like this. Mark Middlecoff was born on March 19th, 1966. Yeah, I'm that old. He established at a young age that the world revolved around him. He was concerned primarily with himself. He did not honor his father and mother. He lied when it benefited himself. 
He was jealous of his older brother. He made excuses for his failings. He abused his body, and he hurt people's feelings. He built a business, but for his own profit and glory. Mark Middlecoff died in November of 1995. And he was buried in the family plot alongside his distant relative, Adam. Perhaps it would be helpful for you sometime this week to write the obituary of the old self that has died in Christ. But may you also write your birth announcement. Perhaps it's something like mine. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are pleased to announce the new birth of Mark Middlecoff in November of 1995. He was born with tears in his solitary bedroom. His first words were, I'm a Christian? I can't believe I just became a Christian. Do you see your life this way? If you're in Christ, this is what you must do. You must reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And it's not an emotional endeavor. This is an intellectual pursuit. You use your brain. For those who say Christians just put your brain on a shelf, that is entirely wrong. John Stott writes this. So the major secret of holy living is in the mind. It is in knowing that our former self was crucified with Christ, in knowing that baptism into Christ is baptism into his death and resurrection, and in considering that through Christ we are dead to sin and alive to God. We are to recall, to ponder, to grasp, to register these truths until they're so integral to our mindset that a return to the old life is unthinkable. My friends, the Christian life cannot be a let go, let God experiment. It's an intellectual pursuit. The problem is many Christians listen far more to their emotions than they do to the words on paper in Scripture. My pastor friend Darren Patrick tweeted this last week. We need to stop listening to ourselves and start talking to ourselves. It's true, isn't it? When you feel like that nagging sin will never go away, stop listening to your emotions and start talking the truth to yourself. Paul is saying that we're to take these deep truths that we've discovered concerning our union with Christ and decide in our heads what they mean for us. And then when the full tally comes in, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The discovery and the decision lead to our final point, the directive. Here's where many Christians, I think, need to be corrected. Many Christians think that God's grace frees them from any sort of demands from God. That's not true. God's grace is actually demanding. Doesn't sound right to some people, but if what we've studied is true, then the grace of God certainly isn't permissive. I mean, 
if God's grace is permissive, why do we read these words in verse 12? Look at them. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That's certainly not permissive words, right? The grace of God rejects permissiveness. In fact, because because God loves us, his grace will not leave us where we are, but rather God's grace leads us to where he is taking us. And thankfully, God gives us grace-filled directives that lead us into what is right. Pastor Mark Driscoll wrote a book that helps men deal with, with uh, porn addictions. And the title of chapter one is A Tall Glass of Toilet Water. Porn is like a tall glass of toilet water. Now, the point for us today is this. If God said, just go ahead and drink whatever the world offers you, is that grace? Of course not. God gives us his grace and he graciously commands us in order to shield us from such things as drinking giant tall glasses of toilet water. It's his grace towards us. The Bible is filled with with grace-filled directives. Ortland points out some of the grace-filled directives of Jesus. He writes, let's think of Jesus alone. The most gracious man who ever walked the face of the earth. What did Jesus say? Go and sin no more. When he said that to us, was he putting us under the law or drawing us into his grace? What else did Jesus say? Jesus said, you must be born again. Now, was he imposing some burden on us? Or was he calling us into life? Jesus also said, listen to me. He said, take up your cross and follow me. He said, humble yourself. He said, forgive 70 times 7. He said, strive to enter through the narrow door. He said, cleanse the inside of the cup. He said, love your enemies. He said, lay up yourselves treasures in heaven. Make disciples of all nations. These are just a few of Jesus' grace-filled directives. The Bible is full of grace-filled directives or commands. Paul gives us one here. Now, how are we not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies? Paul uses the word present twice. The word present means to, to, to put at someone's disposal or to, or to yield. Paul first says what not to present or yield to. He says, do not present your members That's your head, your heart, your your eyes, your ears, your hands, your feet. Do do not present your members uh, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Instead, what are we to do? Well, we've got to skip to the last part of verse 13. We're to present your members to God, your, your eyes, your heart, your ears, your arms, your legs. Present them to God as instruments for righteousness. We bow not before sin, but we bow before God and pledge our allegiance to him. We say, here I am, God, at at your disposal. I know yesterday was a disaster. I feel really grievous about what I've done. But today I rejoice in your grace. And today I, I profess my allegiance to you. 
I present my body, all of me, to you, that your righteous way may be had in me and through me. In the TV series Game of Thrones, Brienne of Tarth is an unlikely hero. In a, in a world full of male knights, she is tall and slender and muscular. She's a well-trained fighter who must prove herself in competition, and of course she does. She ends up becoming the sworn sword of Caitlin Stark. Brienne of Tarth presented herself in allegiance to Lady Stark. She presented her members as instruments for Caitlin Stark's good employment. And she was given a good and glorious calling that caused her to have to travel all around the kingdoms. And even after Lady Stark was murdered, Brienne of Tarth remained loyal to her oath. She continued to serve her lady's request even after she was dead. Paul calls us to a similar but more profound allegiance. His grace-filled directive for us is to present ourselves as, to God as instruments for, for, for his glorious good purposes. Now, it's true. I think on some level we're like, yeah, Mark, I get that. I get that. But yet on another level we're like, but that's just so hard. And we can daily throw up our hands and say, I just don't know how. That's why Paul inserts what he does. You see in between the what, what not to present and to what to present, there's a, something else that Paul says. He inserts something. He, present, he puts, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Why would Paul pause to insert this point? Because in the daily challenges to present ourselves to God uh, and, and to present our members in allegiance to him, we need the power to succeed. So Paul inserts it right between those two opposite directives. Notice that Paul doesn't say this. Present your body, your members to God because, well, that's what good Christians do. Often that's the preaching we hear. Unfortunately, it's often sometimes how we parent. This is what good Christians do. Paul doesn't write that. Instead, he says, turn to God's grace. See, our tendency is to take the grace of God and turn it into a law for us to do. No wonder we fail all the time. We're so focused on not sinning as opposed to focusing on Christ and what he's done for us. Paul is telling us something crucial to our Christian lives, that grace-filled directives, these directives of God, must not be turned into law. We're not under law, we are under grace. And our motivation for putting off sin and putting on righteousness isn't the law's demands. Our motivation is and must always be God's grace. See, God has brought you from death to life. That's God's grace towards you. Why would you want not to want to live the life that He has given to you? You see why our motto here at Grace Presbyterian Church is alive in Christ? Paul is reminding you, Christian, that God has lavished his grace upon you. And now, don't respond by grabbing the law, but rather respond by holding on to God's grace. We're to come alive in Christ. This is how we do it. Paul is showing us that the only way that we can 
put away sin is to magnify God's grace, not the rules we need to follow. Because we know if we focus on the rules, we end up falling short. When we focus on God's grace, his transformation has its effect. You know, far too many Christians live their lives focusing upon avoiding sin. But only God's grace has the power to free us from sin's grip. As we delight in God's grace, as we soak it in, as we cherish it, we cannot help but live out our new life in Christ. Ortland expands this point with these words. See if you find yourself in here somewhere. Sin management binds us to our sin. It puts us into hyper-focus on what's wrong with us. Well, self-awareness is a good and humble thing, but the primary call of the gospel is not hyper-focus on ourselves, but hyper-focus on Christ. You are not under law, dragging you down into fear and paralyzing self-absorption. You are under grace, lifting you up to Christ, the friend of sinners. As we wrap up, I, I hope you see where this directive takes us. It takes us back into the grace of God. It takes us to a promise of God's grace in verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Christian, have you not discovered that you are united to Christ, his life, his death, and resurrection? Christian, have you not decided that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ? And Christian, do you not therefore delight in the directive to present yourself daily to God? If so, then what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Let's pray. This can't be true. Grace is more amazing than we could ever really imagine. We thank you that you have given us real wisdom and insight to the depth of your grace, Heavenly Father. We thank you that salvation isn't just forgiveness from sins, but freedom from sin. We thank you that in Christ we have literally died to sin and we've come alive to you through Christ. May this truth be considered by us all. May we rejoice in the hope that this gives us. And may we walk not under the law, but under grace, we pray. Amen.